Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
you know, people say this, and it's almost become a cliche, but it, it's very true that the kitchen traditionally has been sort of a repository for people who don't fit in anywhere else. You know, a lot of chefs will use the word misfits to refer to themselves. That was Andrew Friedman, author of Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, who explains how a bunch of hippies, misfits, and artistic wanderers created the most vibrant restaurant culture in the world. Before we hear from Friedman, I chat with Chef Frederick Berselius. His Brooklyn restaurant, Asuka, is a well-regarded temple of locally sourced products, Scandinavian-inspired cuisine, and, of course, true Brooklyn bohemian style. Frederick, how are you? I'm good. Uh, when did you start Asuka? Why did you start it? What, what is it other people were not doing in Brooklyn or New York at the time that you wanted to do? So I came to New York from Sweden on holiday to visit many, many years ago. And I fell in love with this place. I fell in love with this city. I loved the energy here, the diversity. And, and uh, soon after coming, I, I knew I wanted to live here and stay. Um, eventually, I fell in love with a girl. I met my wife here many years ago. And I, uh, at one point, decided not... It was, it was after my first visit to New York that I decided I wanted to actually cook for a living. And I wanted to not necessarily be a chef, but I wanted to work being creative. I wanted to work with my hands. I wanted to work with my mind. I had previously planned to maybe work with design or be an architect. But there was something with food that was so multi, multidimensional. Like, there's so many w- different ways of being expressive. And food became this way of staying connected to where I was from through flavors and, and cooking and you know memories from Sweden and sort of having this relationship to Scandinavia in a place that's very different but still had certain similarities. So is this in a tradition of cooking from Sweden or Denmark? You're continuing a tradition with forged ingredients, especially from Scandinavia, or is, this, is your take on this quite different than what other people have done? I think it is quite different because I don't want to cook any food that's traditionally served in Sweden or in Scandinavia. Yes, a spherical pancake is served in Denmark, but often with a different filling. But I wanted to cook with these flavors from Sweden, from the Nordic region, without cooking traditional dishes. Because I wanted to sort of capture... The, uh, to somehow capture the Nordic landscape in our food, to capture a time of year or a place, a place by the sea. You know, like seaweed, for example, is very commonly used in, in Asian cooking, but I wanted to use seaweed in a way where I thought it tasted more of sea and it reminded me of places uh, where I would spend summers along the coast than to taste like you know, nori from Japan, for example. So we work with ingredients from the Northeast, sort of starting from New York and then just like traveling up the East Coast or the, or the states above us. And that's where we source the majority of our ingredients from the Northeast. Uh, so there's no tipping at your restaurant. You have a built-in service charge. Uh, Danny Meyer does too, as you well know, in New York at his restaurants like The Modern. So uh, I, I find... I'm going to argue with you for a second. I understand why you do that, and it's it's fair for the front and the back of the house to be more evenly compensated, and et cetera. But when I get good service, I really want to tip somebody, which I do anyway, because I just feel 
don't know. I just feel that that's, I think I owe it to the server to show my gratitude. So how do you, how do you feel about that? People like me who go like, you know, I really want to tip this person. Um, that it's just something that I remember from first moving here, from coming from Sweden, where tipping is not uh, something commonly practiced. Right. And how long it took for me to, to realize or to, to understand how the whole tip, tipping system works. So I somehow just wanted to sort of make it easier for the guests. We have so many guests coming from abroad and guests coming from places where you don't tip and who have not read up on American customs. And, and I, I wanted to make it easier for them uh, and for our, our staff not to have these awkward uh, en encounters or awkward situations where you have to chase someone down the street and then ask them to come back and tip. I just wanted all the sort of transaction part of the meal to be squared away from the beginning so you didn't have to think about it when you're enjoying your, your evening here. Uh, you mentioned earlier your philosophy of cooking. What is that philosophy? We, all, we spend a lot of time sourcing our ingredients. That's one... Um, aspect but I want to have a very holistic approach to how we serve a meal and everything matters when, when you when you sit down it's 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 everything that happens from the moment that you walk in the door until you leave we try to find this relationship to where where I'm from in Scandinavia to to where we are in New York in Brooklyn and upstate New York upstate New York is a huge inspiration in our cooking because we can find so many ingredients uh, have been brought over at some point by you know, settlers from Europe. But then I want the food to be interesting. I want it to sort of hit these uh, parts of your brain that, that makes it unique. But I also want the food to be very tasty. I want anyone who's never been to a tasting menu restaurant, to a fine dining restaurant, to um, experience something unique. But I also want to be able to cook for for other chefs, for people in the industry, for, for guests who go out to, to uh, these restaurants more frequently than others to, who travel the world for food. If you take a Swede out of Sweden, do they become a different person? I don't know if I would have necessarily done this in Sweden um, or, or taken this path, but I definitely think that leaving Sweden behind, coming here allowed myself and probably other Swedes too to sort of step outside of that whole uh, very conservative uh, nature or very structured environment. And I think in New York, New York is a perfect melting pot of, of cultures and, and uh, uh, diversity that you can, you can start asking questions and you can start, um, every, everything is just put into a different perspective. Frederick, thank you so much. Uh, a pleasure. I love your book. Uh, I love to come eat at your restaurant, Asuka, sometime. And uh, congratulations for all your success and the great food. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That was Asuka chef Frederick Berselius. His new book is called Asuka. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be taking your call. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm good. I, th I think it's time to take some calls. What do you think? Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Carolyn. I'm from Warwick, Rhode Island. Oh, hi, Carolyn from Warwick. How can we help you today? 
Well, I have a question that my son asked me. Uh, he goes to work, and it's a small office, and he's on a low-carb diet, so he brings about five eggs with him as deviled eggs. And it is very sulfurous when he opens up the container, and the, uh, he said the office workers are a, a little offended. It's kind of hard for them to take. So he wondered if there's something we could do to help him out to eliminate the strong odor from his eggs. How are the eggs boiled? He boils the eggs. Um, I'm not sure how. And then he slices them and then takes the inside and mashes them and adds a seasoning to the yellow and separates the containers, one white and another yellow, mashed, and brings them that way. You might try. He might try steaming them. Steaming is my favorite way of doing Me eggs. Me too, absolutely. A, a six and a half minutes is soft-boiled. I think 10 to 11. 10 is what I usually yeah, do. Yeah, 10 minutes steaming, either by putting a half an inch of water at the bottom of the pan or you could use a steaming basket. And that also makes it easier to peel, by the way. Yes, that, and then you put the them right method. into ice water. Ice water. Which will, you know, that green line that happens between the white and yolk happens if you don't put it into ice water. And also if you overcook them, and they tend to be right. a little more aromatic. But I think a hard-boiled egg is a hard-boiled egg is a hard-boiled egg, even the most perfectly <laughs> cooked one, steamed the way yeah. Chris and I just said, which I hope everybody tries, is going to be um, a little funky. You know, it's sort of like when you get on a train or an airplane and you open up that tuna fish sandwich. It's <laughs> You're just, the least popular person yeah, on the plane. There's just nothing you can do about it. It's just the you know, nature uh, of the situation. I think he should celebrate the funk. Don't hide it. Just, you know, it's part of yeah, who he is. it's part of life. Yeah, I mean, but, if he likes to eat it, he should eat it. Well, I've got one other idea, which is totally absurd and I'm sure he won't go for. There is okay. one aroma that's very overwhelming that a lot of people find very pleasant, and that is truffle oil. Truffle oil and, should be banned. I know. A lot of people say that because there's nothing it. natural about it. No. It's manufactured. I sort of agree with Chris, but, you know, some people really love it. Anyway, that's all you can smell. So if we put a little truffle oil into his no. deviled eggs. I've and, got it. What? what he should do yeah. is buy a durian. Okay. Oh, no. No, no, no. Tell her what a durian no, no, no. is. A durian's a tropical fruit. Well, there's 20 or 30 different kinds, but some of them have a very, very strong... They're quite aromatic. Uh, oh, I know sewer. what you mean. That yeah. big, big... Uh, yes, greenish. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he should go into the <laughs> lunchroom about 11 or 11.30, <laughs> slice it open yeah. and leave. So oh, then when no. he gets in later, no one's going to notice a little hard-boiled egg. Or another one is stinky cheese. Yeah. Just so leave no one's going to stinky cheese out. Yeah. No one's going to notice. Yeah. yeah. That's what I would yeah. do. Oh, this Just, is so funny. There you go. It's okay. a durian solution. Yeah. I thought maybe dill or some other, no. uh, you know, beautiful scent that would add to Sulfur it. Sulfur compounds but, uh, okay. and dill, that's not going to No, it's it. just eggs or eggs or eggs. Uh, eggs you know. or eggs or eggs. Yeah. Try the steaming. That's a better way. It's a gentler way. And that would be like in a... a, a steamer basket. A steamer basket. Set over water. Yeah. So you yeah. bring the water to okay. a boil first right. with the lid on, and then you mm. put the eggs in right. with a slotted spoon or a big Top. spoon so you don't stick your hand into, you know, over-steaming water. Yeah. And then you put the lid on and cook it at a simmer for, you know, 10 to 12 minutes, then yeah. get it right into ice and water to stop the cooking. But it's still going to smell like a hard-boiled egg. And, yeah. the, and, and then yeah. the bumper sticker is, remember the durian. Yeah. <laughs> so. And whatever you do, no remember truffle Remember the oil. durian. Yes. Carolyn, th- thanks for calling. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. All righty. Take care. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question, just give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at millstreetradio.com.
com. Hi, this is Mary. Hey, Mary. Where are you calling from? I'm from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. How can we help you? My mother was a great baker, and one of her signature desserts was rhubarb custard pie with meringue on top. And I decided, well, maybe I should um, continue the tradition of making it. But I've been running into trouble with the custard part of the rhubarb and the custard not getting done. I've had to extend my baking time 15, sometimes 30 minutes beyond what the recipe had called for, and that doesn't do the crust any good at all. Well, this is like a Sherlock Holmes moment, so we have to ask you some questions. <laughs> yes, we do. Because we have lots of questions. We do. Like, are you pre-cooking the custard a little bit on the stove before you mm, fill no. the pie? Yeah, just putting the mixed ingredients together. Right. And the rhubarb's raw? My mother's recipe called for blanching the rhubarb with boiling water for five minutes and then draining that. Mm. Other than that, it's raw, fresh, or raw, frozen. And what temperature is the oven? One time I used a 375 oven. That's too high. One time I put it up to 400 for the first 15 minutes and then backed it down. Okay, so I have three suggestions. One is with a rhubarb. I would put it in a colander and toss it with sugar. Sugar. Like a third of a cup of sugar and let it sit for half an hour and drain out. And then get rid of, obviously, toss it. So you're sort of concentrating its flavor but also getting rid of that extra moisture. And then second is I would... I would take the custard mixture and heat it on top of the stove and get it pretty hot and then pre-bake your crust, blind bake it. And when that's nice and light brown, take that out, put the drained rhubarb in the pie shell and cover with a hot custard. Put that in an mm-hmm. oven. That's not more than 350. I'd I say agree. 325 to 350. And custard needs oh. gentle temperature. Yeah, it'll take about 25 minutes to set because it's already partially cooked. And that way, you've gotten rid of the excess liquid. The custard is going to cook faster, and your crust is going to come out nice and crisp. And I think the rhubarb will taste better. Yeah. I would think that boiling it sort of makes yeah. it bland. I agree with Chris. I think that sounds like a plan. You agree with me? I do. Um, What's wrong? Boy, boy, this is my lucky thing. <laughs> anyway, those are three things I would try. In all custard pies, you want to uh, cook it on top of the stove. That should really help. But I think your high 400-degree oven at 375 is really also really problematic because you're going to overcook the outside of the custard by the time the inside gets cooked. Right. That's why the inside's probably, the center's not cooked properly. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you know that it's cooked? What you want to see is the very center, like an inch and a half or two inches, is just jiggling a little bit. So it's not fully set. Because there's carryover cooking Right. Take it out, put it on a rack, and let it sit for a couple hours at room temperature on a cooling rack. And after about 15 minutes, that center is going to set up really nicely. I think that's all we know about rhubarb custard pie. We'll give it another try then. Okay, okay well, and, and, and let us know. Please yeah, do please know. let us know. Yeah, we really this like is, to know. This is always like a cliffhanger. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, Mary, thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Andrew Friedman about the early days of the American celebrity chef. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Most Jay Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Back in the 60s and 70s, if you told your family you wanted to pursue a career as a chef, it was a little like telling them you were going out to join the circus. Andrew Friedman's new book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, tells the story of the misfits and hippies who ran some of the world's most legendary kitchens and the chefs who transformed the profession from blue-collar to celebrity status. So let me start with a description of... uh, Gordo Mata-Clark, who created food. This was a, an event uh, done early on in this whole process of reinventing American cooking. And you write, they injected the suckling pig with pepper water, jury-rigged the grill, lit a fire with branches from the swamps of New Jersey, hung a hammock, and spent 18 hours under the Brooklyn Bridge tending to the pig. <laughs> I love this. The next day, as a saxophone player provided the living soundtrack, Mabu Mines performed a Beckett play, Tina Gerard fashioned a house from dirt, and Matta Clark sliced the pork and served approximately 500 people sandwiches. So is this sort of uh, at, at the root of what was going on uh, in the late 70s and 80s? Uh, in certain pockets, I think it was. And what's so fascinating to me about that story that you just shared is, well, a couple of things. One is that, you know, that's almost, that's about a half century ago and, you know, if you took out certain um, geographic cues, you know, somebody, if you read that to them, would probably assume that was something happening somewhere in Brooklyn this Saturday. That moment is credited as sort of the the big bang that eventually led to the creation of this restaurant called Food in Soho, which was created by Mata Clark and, and some other artists. Um, you know, but also part of that, their mission was what we would today call, you know, artisanal, organic uh, sourcing. Um, they got their butter from from a farm in Vermont, you know, and this was in 71, 72. Um, and also in New York. I mean, it's, it's very much the kind of thing at that time, and it's the reason I put this in the book, that I think most people would have assumed was exclusive to an area like Berkeley on the other side of the country. There seems to be two, two things going on. What, a great quote from the 70s was, I'm the chef, I'm doing things my way, expletive you. In other words, yes. I, I don't really care. This is all about me. And then there's a great yeah. quote from Mimi Sheraton who says, they wanted to be given credit, talking about these young restaurateurs in New York, wanted to be given credit for their goals, for what I'm trying to do, my concept, my philosophy. And to me, it's my dinner. And it's, if it's not good, I don't care what your goals are. So I, yes. I, I sort of like that counterpoint. Well, what, what's fascinating to me about two people, the first one was Ken Frank, who still to this day has the restaurant La Toque in Napa, but both Ken Frank in LA starting in the, in the 70s, which is when he said that thing that you just quoted, I'm the chef, you know, blank you, um, and, and the people that Mimi was referring to were students of uh, Nouvelle Cuisine, which was the, the movement in France that kind of uh, took off in the, I guess you'd say in the 60s, got its name in the early 70s. And it was very much the first movement where the food was this sort of what we now assume to be restaurant food, right? Prior to this time, restaurant food, uh, if you went to a quote unquote fancy dinner, you were eating French food called from the, the canon of classic French cuisine, what most people think of as Escoffier, the Escoffier school. And 
the, the people in New York that Mimi was referring to and Ken Frank himself in L.A. were very much in the, in the model of the Nouvelle Cuisine movement, which elevated chefs, which the chefs became famous in France. And that, I think, was part of the appeal to these young people here. And it was a very, it was like having a new toy. So I think there was, uh, Mimi to me is really fascinating because she is, for people who don't know, she was the New York Times restaurant critic from the mid 70s to the early mid 80s. And she was very proudly clinical. She was not swept up in the romance of what was happening. Whereas I think a lot of other critics, diners and chefs very much were sort of of the mind, you know, if this is new and exciting, um, I haven't seen it before, then it must be good. Or at least it must be good enough for you as a diner and a paying customer to want to eat it. <laughs> you know, there's a great line, Jonathan Waxman, who has Barbudo in New York and, right. and other restaurants around the country now, once said to Ruth Reichel of cooking in LA in the late 70s, I can serve my customers anything I want for dinner tonight, as long as it's not what they had for dinner last night. Let's move on to beginnings, uh, how these people got started. Wolfgang Puck, according to uh, the owner of Ma Maison, f- said, quote, I found him living in, an, in a decidedly unfashionable hotel, a poster on the wall of the softcore flick Emmanuel pin, pinned up, sheets serving as curtains, and just one bed shared platonically with his co-chef Guy Leroy. So here he is living you know, in a one-room apartment with sheets as curtains, and that's how he got started. It's, I mean, the Wolfgang Puck story to me, it's so perfect to me that it happened in the shadow of Hollywood, right? Because here's a guy, I mean, who would ever think that this young guy who, um, I mean, if you go back just a, a click to his childhood, I mean, he had a, his stepfather was a boxer, he thought the fact that his stepson wanted to be a cook made him a sissy and told him so. Uh, he left home in his teen- middle teenage years to go take a job somewhere. He was such a, a klutz that the chef fired him. <laughs> um, <laughs> knocks around uh, some kitchens in Europe, um, gets his legs under him, uh, works in some three-star Michelin places, comes to New York City, doesn't want the job that he had waiting for him here, thought it was too boring after doing the Nouvelle Cuisine thing in France. He's a race car enthusiast, so he thinks it sounds interesting to go to Indianapolis because that's where the Indy 500 is. He gets to Indianapolis, which to put it mildly is no Monte Carlo, leaves there, goes to LA, and is cooking in the basement restaurant of a complex called the Arco Towers. And he wasn't even the chef. He was the co-chef with this wingman, this Guy Leroy guy, who was his buddy, who traveled with him in all these jobs that I just listed. But Mame Zone was a, a restaurant that was failing spectacularly, needed a new chef. He gets the job, and almost like in the blink of an eye, he's unleashed. He starts cooking this amazing food, the likes of which L.A. hadn't seen. And that place became, before Spago, you know, the, the sort of contemporary Hollywood canteen was Ma Maison. Um, going back to the beginning, if you were a woman in the 70s, getting started in this business was hard. Cindy Paulson, you quote about applying to the CIA in the 1970s, quote, I got rejected because I was a woman and they'd filled their quota for three years. 
which I just almost fell off my chair. And then Mary Sue Milliken applies for a restaurant job and the quote, they said, you're too pretty. All the men would go crazy. He offered me a job as a hat check girl. Uh, and so it was pretty hard to, to break into that business uh, if you were a woman right back in the 70s. It was um, amazingly challenging. And I think the next line to Mary Sue's quote was, I went home and I cried. Right. Look, the history of professional kitchens is it's very male-dominated. Uh, it's a very um, uh, militaristic, classically. I mean, people call the kitchen team, a, you know, it's called the brigade. It's very much a call and response. You know, someone calls something from the past and the, and the cooks say, you know, we chef. It's very hostile to women. And there are tons of stories of women, I would say, from the Midwest to the East Coast having um, just these nightmare experiences. Uh, a, getting into a kitchen at all was very difficult. B, once you got there, you were treated as a second-class citizen. C, it was very hard. And, you know, if you could get into the kitchen as a woman, you could be either garbage, meaning, you know, cold preps and, and salads, or um, pastry. Those were the two stations that were available to you. Now, what's fascinating to me is the West Coast, and especially Northern California, completely unique among uh, Western culinary hubs. I mean, you, you don't hear these stories, by and large, about Los Angeles. It was much more, you know, open to what Mary Sue eventually, with another Midwesterner, Susan Feniger, moved to Los Angeles and opened City Cafe and then Border Grill city restaurant, and really thrived out there. And then there's a story about Jasper White. He, he, there was a dishwasher at, at one hotel he was working at named Robert. And the story is, Jasper's talking, I don't know what was wrong with him, but he would try to drown himself in the sink when he ran out of work to do. And Uncle Charlie, who I guess was the boss, said, make sure Robert always has stuff, even if you have to give him clean stuff to wash again. You know, which is a nice counterpoint to some stories you hear about working in a restaurant. You know, someone was looking out for this guy. Well, 100%. You know, people say this, and it's almost become a cliche, but it, it's very true, that the kitchen traditionally has been sort of a repository for people who don't fit in anywhere else. You know, a lot of chefs will use the word misfits to refer to themselves. You know, they, they, they're people very often who found the kitchen almost by accident you know, in a dishwashing job in high school. Uh, that story that Jasper tells to me is just a very extreme, touching illustration of the sort of tribal bond that exists amongst people who work in a kitchen together. I think it's it's the positive side of that military mentality. You know, I think these are war buddies. You're, you're in the trenches right. together. So let's talk about Jeremiah Tower, which we obviously have to do. Uh, one of my favorite stories is Larry Forgione again, talking about seeing Jeremiah in the Hamptons. I guess they were doing a, a dinner or something. It says, here's Jeremiah dressed to the T. Everything's perfect. He's on a bicycle with one of those little bells and you have to pull with your thumb. He's riding down the street, going into town with one hand on the handlebar and the other holding a flute of champagne ringing his little bell as he goes through town. And you just go like, you know, that is so Jeremiah. I mean, that's perfect. Isn't it's that perfect? perfect image it's just, yeah, of this guy you yeah. know, who spent a good part of his childhood on the Cunard line, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, to the manor born. Yeah. You know, I took about five years to write the book. And when I started it, 
this whole sort of renaissance that Jeremiah's had recently was just starting to happen. I, I actually, when I started this book, believe it or not, didn't know how I was going to reach Jeremiah Tower, who, who was known to be living in Mexico, checked out, flipping houses. He has a, an architecture degree, among other things, and really, you know, in self-imposed exile. But he, he's got to be one of the most fascinating characters I, I would say, in the history of this profession in the United States, and and also just a very complicated, interesting person. You know, Jeremiah is to a food writer what, what Hamlet is to an actor. You know, like you, you kind of have to take right. on Jeremiah at some point and see how you come out on him, because there's so many points of view about this guy. Uh, there's, there are people who are unbelievably loyal to him, you know, there are detractors, you know, stars w- was undeniably, uh, if you're going to list the 20 most influential, yeah, yeah. you know, restaurants, you can't, ar- there's no argument against that. And then also to this thing we were just speaking about, you know, that a guy like this, you know, Harvard educated, as you said, to the manor born, you know, spent his life traveling around the world with his parents, you know, mixing with the kitchen population of that time which was a much grittier population than what is still a fairly can be gritty, you know, population today. Right. Uh, the chefs from hell, who, who were the chefs from hell? Oh my gosh, that story. Um, the chefs from hell are, they're fascinating to me for a number of reasons, but you know, it's taken for granted today that chefs all know each other and, and they certainly at the very least know each, what each other look like thanks to media coverage, social media and all that. Um, the Chefs from Hell was a, a lunch club, which is not probably the most accurate way to refer to it, that a guy named Jerry Dawes, and Jerry Dawes back in the day was a wine merchant, and he put together a monthly gathering of chefs. The idea was that they would meet for lunch at one of the chef's restaurants. The host chef would do a five-course lunch. Jerry would provide the wines. And what's amazing about this lunch club was. It started in 89. The first lunch was at Charlie Palmer's restaurant, Oriole. And the chefs who came, most of them had been operating in New York, maybe not as executive chefs, but definitely as cooks for about a decade. And it was Rick Moonen, Tom Valenti, Hmm. Thomas Keller, David Burke, Charlie Palmer, um, amusingly, Rusty Staub, the, the Mets player uh-huh. yep. who owned two restaurants was part of this group. Uh, but here's what's amazing. Those are all, you know, fairly important people. And a lot of them, when they showed up to this lunch, had never met before. That is amazing. It speaks to, I think, how little sort of cross-pollination there was back then. They weren't out Instagramming their dinners all over New York City, you know, half the nights of the week. They were in their restaurants. And it's amazing to me that unless they had happened to work together, that those people could not know each other after being in this, you know, fairly small city of New York for about 10 years. So you spent four years researching and writing this book, talked to hundreds of people. What what was the, you know, what was that moment where you were talking to someone where either something totally unexpected came out or something that kind of represented the entire theme of the book? Uh, I really did not have an appreciation for what a big deal it was to decide to become a cook. 
I had this revelation where I was sitting with Evan Kleinman, who used to be a chef in LA and now, you know, is a media personality. And um, we were having an uh, interview, an interview at the bar at Animal Restaurant. And she was telling me about working her way up to telling her parents that she wanted to be a cook. And this was, again, I was probably had heard this dozens of times. And something clicked for me. And I said, oh, my God, you know what? This is almost like you, you it was almost like your guy's version of coming out. And she laughed and she said, you know, I, I think it hmm. kind of was. And not long after that, I was sitting with Jody Williams, who's openly gay chef in New York City of Bouvet Restaurant, interviewing for the book. And I told Jody that story and she laughed and she said, well, you know, Andrew, it's funny. I sat my father down one day and I said, I have two pieces of bad news for you. I'm gay and I want to be a cook. <laughs> but these were really people who were the product of this time, you know, of the, the politics of the time, of the culture of the time, who did not want to grow up and be their parents, who wanted to do something that brought meaning to their lives. I mean, this all sounds very quaint and corny now, but that's really what it was. And I'll tell you, it's funny. There, I mentioned Andy Forsheimer. We did an interview in Chelsea, in New York City. We came out of the place where we had a coffee and recorded. And when we walked out onto the street, Andy said to me, does your book have a theme? And I said, well, you know, it kind of does. I said, because uh, this was late in the process for me. I said, I don't want it to seem preachy. I said, but I'll ask you a question. I said, why did you get into this business? And he said, because I love to cook. And I said, that's the theme of the book. That was Andrew Friedman. His new book is Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, How Food Lovers, Free Spirits, Misfits, and Wanderers Created a New American Profession. When Jeremiah Tower was returning from his triumphant 1983 Astor Mansion celebration of the new American cuisine, Friedman quoted him as saying, almost in tears, we won, it's a success, we're over, this is the beginning of the end. For some chefs, there was nothing sweeter than that first moment of creation. For others, sweet success was achieved only through a lifetime of hard work and dedication. And that's why chefs such as Alice Waters and Larry Forgione are still with us. They just keep showing up. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, orange anise bundt cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, one of the themes these days is in baked goods where people use olive oil instead of butter, which, quote-unquote, lightens the dessert. So we decided to take a look at bundt cake, Italian style, where they use olive oil. So, Chris, this is a cake called ciambella. It's a sweet, almost like a donut, has kind of a not quite dense crumb, a little bit lighter than a bundt cake would typically be. And we're making ours with olive oil and ours is orange flavored. So we're using orange juice and orange zest. We kind of took some inspiration from a classic pairing of orange and fennel and added some anise seed to it as well. So to maximize the flavor, something we do at Milk Street a lot is combine citrus zest with sugar. In this case, it's orange zest. We're going to add the anise seed in there as well and then rub it with our fingers. And what that will do is release the oil from the zest and that will coat the sugar and really add that flavor throughout. Another way we're adding anise here is using Zambuca, which is an Italian anise flavored liqueur. And that gets mixed together with a combination of all-purpose and almond flour. And that's going to add a little bit of extra flavor there as well. We bake this in a bun 
pan, of course. And they, they would use a ring mold in Italy instead of a bump pan? That's right. They would use a ring mold. That's traditionally how it's made. Most people here don't have a ring mold, so the bunt pan was kind of the next best thing for us. You want to make sure to coat your bunt pan with a cooking spray with flour in it to make sure that it doesn't stick when you turn it out. Finally, when it cools for a little while, we add a really simple honey orange glaze to it. It adds a nice crackly texture to the outside of the cake. And so, as we said at the beginning, this is made with olive oil, not butter. So this gives it a lighter texture because butter, when it cools to room temperature, tends to get a little heavy and dense, and olive oil doesn't really change its texture at all, right? That's right. So, Chimbella, thank you, Lynn. This is an orange anise-flavored bun cake using olive oil instead of butter from Italy, and uh, it's delicious in the summer or in the winter. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Great Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to hear from our listeners uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Patricia. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about bay leaves. In all of the supermarkets in my region, I've only ever seen whole bay leaves, and I've only seen recipes calling for the whole leaf to be added to a stew or a braise. And as you know, these are dishes that require a couple of hours of cooking to impart the flavor. So if I didn't have that much time to allow the whole leaf to permeate the stew, or if I was making a poaching liquid, could I just grind the whole bay leaf in my spice grinder and add the powder to the liquid? And then would I use the whole leaf or just part of it? Because it is a pretty potent spice. Chris hates bay leaves, so I'm going to pick up the go from here. I wouldn't, the thing about grinding is it will be a lot stronger. So you would add just a very little bit. I mean, you can certainly do that. One of the things you want to keep in mind is what kind of bay leaves you have. Because Turkish bay leaves, which are the ones they used in Mediterranean cooking, are nice, nice flavor. California bay leaves can take over completely. And it's just you've ruined your stock, your soup, your stew. This is even more talking about the whole leaves. So I would say in general, whether you're using it whole or you're going to grind it up and add a pinch, make sure you've got the Turkish, not the California. Okay. Okay, Chris, do you want to weigh in at all? A little harsh with me about bay leaves. Um, I just think the old dried out bay leaves don't do much. I mean, you can get fresh bay leaves. Well, uh, except and keep un- them in the freezer. sometimes, unfortunately, they are from California and they will take over. I don't think you can get fresh Turkish bay leaves. In this case, you want to beware of the fresh bay leaves because the ones from California aren't even exactly the same as the ones from Turkey, and they're just much stronger. Well, our uh, food editor, Matt Card, does sometimes grind up bay leaves, but he does it like if he's doing a, a, for brining, for example. So you can put bay leaves in a food processor with some brown sugar, salt, garlic, some spices, like allspice, and grind it down even with a little bit of liquid in it. And that could be used uh, as a base. It could be used as a base for brining, so you can do that. But or if you could just do it in a spice grinder yes. all by its happy little self. And just put a little in something that's not long cooked. You can right. do that, too. But yeah. just a little bit because it is rather strong, sort of like eucalyptus or something, sort of crazy. Oh, okay. Or, or you could do like I do and just when a recipe says bay leaves, I pretend it didn't say anything. <laughs> I told you he was the wrong person. <laughs> well, to I just this go question. like you know All right. those old bay leaves have been sitting around. My, my mother had bay leaves from the Truman administration, <laughs> you know, so it just didn't really help out too much. But anyway, yes, you can you can grind them up, but don't use too much. Yes. So. Okay, okay, Patricia. Thanks for calling. Thank you very Thank you. much. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. 
You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. That number, once again, is 855-426-9843 or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Claire in Louisville, Kentucky. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, uh, my question today is about um, how to care for stainless steel cookware. I recently began investing in some high-quality stainless steel pans, and I've been getting conflicting advice about how to clean them. Some people have said to wipe them out after cooking something and let a patina build up, and others have said to clean them with Barkeeper's Friend and keep them shiny. Wait, 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 wait. Who said let the patina build up? Is that someone who doesn't <laughs> like washing dishes? <laughs> maybe. I maybe they think... a lot of tutorials about it, so... No, that's, no. That's different kind. That's like black steel, like what woks are, or, right. you know, or if you have a cast iron pan, that's for that, but not for stainless steel. No, you, what happens, and this has happened to me and everyone a million times, is you get sort of a crusty stuff on the bottom, like you sauteed fish or something, or chicken, and it's stuck, the skin's stuck, and you have to get that off. I find the best method, which also means less work, which is good, is when you're finished doing the rest of the dishes, put the skillet or whatever in the sink, throw in some soap or barkeeper's friend or whatever, hot water, and let it sit. And the next morning, it comes right out. That's okay. by far the best method. Barkeeper's friend's great, but if you really have a, a stuck-on bits and pieces, you're going to be working pretty hard to get it off. So soaking is really the best method. You know, even taking it a step further, I worked with a cookware company that had stainless steel pans, and one of the things they recommended is what Chris just said, put hot water in it and a little bit of dish soap, but simmer it for about 15 minutes. Simmer it for about 15 minutes. And that will really help. I've never used Barkeeper's Friend, but a lot of people say it doesn't hurt the pan. It also works if you make caramel, right? And some of it sticks to the pan. Right. Fill it with water, boil it, and it comes right out. Boil it, will come right out. Anyway, with all that. Thanks. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for calling. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, most backyard cooks waste most of the heat from their grill. So instead, when the coals are burning hot, and before you add the main course, use that heat to grill peppers, onions, scallions, or perhaps eggplant. The high heat will quickly cook the vegetables, which can then be used for salads and side dishes. Here's another tip. Use the high heat to char whole tomatoes. Then peel off the skin, core and coarsely chop them, or process in a food processor with a handful of herbs, olive oil, and salt for nearly instant sauce to match most any meat or to use as a base for salsa, gazpacho, or pasta sauce. You can find more at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, I chat with our regular guest, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, maybe this week you'll tell me the Greek yogurt will make my hair grow back. I'm <laughs> no, nothing along those lines. But I, I thought we might talk about the recent lettuce scare and why E. coli has become such a problem with produce. Oh, uh, that's actually I don't I don't know the answer to that. What is the answer? So part it's really interesting. So before we even get to that, it's probably worth going back to you know that 20 years ago, all the concern was sort of in ground beef and hamburger. You used to have E. coli scares, but they all seem to be coming out of fast food. But these days. It turns out that actually fresh vegetables are causing about a quarter of all food poisonings in the United States, at least between 1998 and 2008. And that's just leafy vegetables. 
that's more than any other food product, including dairy or poultry, you know, the things that we usually get all scared of when it comes to food poisoning. This recent outbreak was bad. I mean, you know, it's the worst that we've had in more than a decade. Uh, You had more than 170 people in 30 states get ill. Almost half of them were hospitalized and 20 got kidney failure. And one person even died in California. But the reasons why are interesting and somewhat unavoidable. Um, First of all, we're just simply eating more fresh produce than we used to, which is good. And that's what we want. Americans are eating more vegetables and a lot of vegetables we consume, we don't cook. And of course, cooking is the way to to destroy most bacteria or things that you might consume that would cause food poisoning. So we sort of rely on the way that we raise and grow and, and put the food together to provide us with protection. But with respect to things like lettuce, it's it's going to be hard to turn that stuff around. One of the reasons why that we're seeing so much of this is because of the ways that they actually harvest the lettuce. They actually core it in the field by hand with knives. And of course, those knives can get dirty. They can even get literally dirt on them. Um, and once they're cored, plants often produce this sort of milky latex right. substance, which traps the pathogens in the food. So even if you wash it, even if you rinse it, and and lettuce, which is often bagged, is rinsed a couple of times, you can't get rid of the E. coli. You can't get rid of the bacteria. Further, the, the you know the processing, the, the fact that we like the vegetables and that we like the lettuce to be prepackaged in these bags where huge amounts of it is put together from all different kinds of farms at the same time, uh, it's very difficult to trace the original contamination back to one farm and to say, this is the one that caused it that we can get out. The idea that we're consuming our produce locally is gone. Uh, it's even in organic that, you know, studies have shown, as we've talked about, I think, previously, it is not that organic food is safer from E. coli or that you can avoid it. So really, this is just one of those instances where we just all need to be more aware. I think we need to be ready to throw out the lettuce when it becomes a scare. But this is a big transition, I think, to the way that we used to think about foodborne illness, where it would come from. It's much less the, the meats and the things that we used to be panicked about in the past. And right now, it's, it's really our fresh vegetables. I always associate E. coli with a living organism, like with mm-hmm. waste or something, you know, whatever. But you're telling me E. coli can just exist in the soil, for example? It can definitely exist in the soil, and it's one of those, unfortunately, that is passed such a way in human beings that whenever human beings are interacting uh, with food, that it can happen. But absolutely, because you have to remember that animals are there, animals have waste, waste gets in the soil. So E. coli can get almost anywhere, uh, and we, we, we can cook it to kill it, which is often what we will do with, with beef or with you know ground beef or things that might be concerning in that respect. But with respect to fresh vegetables, unless we're willing to cook, which we're not going to do with lettuce— there's really no way to kill it before we get there. So, okay, the obvious question then is you, you get the lettuce home and mm-hmm. you want to wash it or use some sort of bleach or something to reduce the potential for contamination. Does any of that actually work or not? It works a bit, but not nearly as, as much as we would hope to get it to zero. In other, in other words, they will talk about soaking it or using vegetable rinses. Uh, but even that, because of the way that these things get trapped sort of within the lettuce, especially with, with green leafy vegetables and get into crevices that are almost impossible to reach, 
it's very hard to get the risk to zero. And again, this is one of those where it's not, I'm not relaying this in order to panic people. I mean, certainly don't avoid vegetables. The benefits are far greater than the potential harms. Uh, but it is one of those where I think it's important that people do pay attention to the news and recognize that when there are these unfortunate recalls, you just have to throw the stuff away. There is no way to to protect yourself once the contamination is there. We can continue to try to reduce this at the source, uh, but the best thing people can do is just be vigilant and keep watching the news. If I'm buying from a major chain, which is being sourced by major growers, is that potentially a higher risk than buying from a small local organic or non-organic farmer? If we're buying organic where they're not coring it in the fields, uh, which unfortunately is what's happening with a lot of this mass-produced romaine lettuce, that could theoretically reduce the risk of contamination that we're seeing with this specific outbreak. But unfortunately, that's just the way that most romaine lettuce at this point is harvested. If you bought greens with the roots intact, mm -hmm. that would be a, a lower risk overall? I suppose. Pose it might. It's funny. It's interesting because I've seen no one advocate that we do that. So I, I'm not sure that it would reduce it enough to sort of warrant it. Certainly it would slow uh, production in huh. such a way that it might raise the cost. And again, this is all trade-offs. It probably would raise the cost more than the benefits you'd see in terms of risk. Well, it sounds like as this these outbreaks continue and grow, uh, we should bring back the taster, right? I mean, King's had tasters. Yes. You, just, you just need someone to taste your romaine for a couple days before that, you taste it. That or just it. always buy the bags, hold on to it, and wait to see if anyone else gets sick first. Thank you so much. Uh, you didn't give us much hope to, uh, in terms of avoiding the problem, uh, but at least we know it is a problem. Thank you. Anytime. Dr. Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine and also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. My interview with Chef Priscellius at Oscar Restaurant in Brooklyn made me wonder about tasting menus. The problem with tastings is that when you get something you really like, you don't get enough of it. It's like speed dating. You want a deeper relationship. You know, a tasting menu allows the peripatetic diner to just move on. But a regular menu forces one to experience the consequences of one's decisions. Sounds a lot like life to me. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to our website, 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm -hmm.